Hey y'all, welcome to Magic Gumbo. I'm your host Red, and this month we'll be digging in to some real life horrors and their Hollywood counterparts. Today's case is a bit gnarly, so if you have little ones around, or anyone who's a bit sensitive for that matter, you might want to stick some jelly beans in their ears until this one is over. Jennifer's Body, starring Megan Fox and written by Diablo Cody that came out in 2009, was one of those cult classic movies that I'd always heard about, but never really seen. But thanks to the pandemic chaining us to the radiator for the last couple of years, and having seen virtually everything on every streaming service imaginable, I gave it a whirl. It's a silly horror romp in which a rock band tries to sacrifice our leading lady to the devil. Things go awry and chaos ensues. But once it was over, I was horrified to learn that it was loosely based, in fact, from the horrific murder of Elise Paula. And as a lanyard, the title of the picture was taken from a song of the same name from Hole's 1994 record, Live Through This. If only our Elise had. In the summer of 1995, Elise Poller was a gregarious all-American teenager. She was active in a church choir, loved sports, and had a vested interest in theater, with daydreams of perhaps one day becoming a Hollywood star. Like most 15-year-olds, though, she was beginning to test her boundaries and doing things that I'm sure, if we're honest, a lot of us did at that age. She had begun sneaking out at night and running around with people that probably weren't the best of companions. But it was when Elise began dipping her toes into drugs and alcohol that her parents thought to intervene. They did everything right for Elise. How was anyone to know that this well-intended intervention would be her undoing? When authorities alerted Elise's folks that she'd been visibly inebriated at school, they decided to take action. Elise was entered into a drug program at the Mariposa Community Recovery Center. It was there that she met the lovely Jacob DeLashman. Jacob was a 16-year-old delinquent known for being a meth head and all-around dumpster fire of a human being. Elise, however, always saw the best in everyone, almost to a fault, folks would say, and the two became acquainted. But Jacob was nothing but bad news. His associates were 15-year-olds Travis Williams and Joseph Fiorella and Royce Casey, 17. This band of outcasts were not exactly model citizens. All were known drug users and had been in varying degrees of trouble with the authorities. Fiorella had been kicked out of the school he and Elise both attended for reported drug use. The four of them were in a metal band, using air quotes here, called Hatred, that no one had ever actually heard play. They had also developed a growing interest in the occult, led by Fiorella and his obsession with Aleister Crowley and Satanism. He collected information on the subject, like most kids of that era collected Beanie Babies. It was around this time that they all got it into their adult brains that performing a sacrifice to Satan would make them suck less, though I highly doubt it and to be more like their favorite band Slayer, whom they idolized and whose lyrics they studied like gospel. And thus, a sinister plan was set into motion. For reasons unknown, Fiorella had developed a fixation on Elise. Perhaps it was because she was a beautiful, blue-eyed blonde. Perhaps he'd been dropped on his head one too many times. Whatever the case, it was decided she would be their perfect victim in their quest to be less horrible. I really wish someone would have told these idiots that the devil doesn't give two squirts about their crappy band, 
He has more important things to do, like, oh, I don't know, going down to Georgia to play the fiddle. But I digress. So, the boys began plotting. They studied the lyrics from their beloved Slayer, which, by the way, according to Paul Bostaff, the drummer from said band, says they even screwed that up, and hatched a plan. Their first, albeit thankfully failed, attempt on Elisa's life took place one day after school in March of 95. The four Dorketeers were loitering down the street from Elisa's home and called her over. Not suspecting anything, and having no reason not to trust them, Elise joined them to be told Williams had slid down into the bar ditch and needed her help. As she neared the edge, one of the other jerks pushed her into the small ravine. Fiorella tossed Williams a knife, the knife that would ultimately be used to take her life, and the boys began chanting, do it, do it, like some demented Nike promo. But Williams wimped out. Maybe deep down he knew that even Lucifer himself couldn't help the hate it. I mean, hatred. As luck would have it, if you want to call it luck, Lisa Ann Poller, Elisa's mother, was out for a walk and witnessed this little interaction. The cockroaches scattered as she approached the group to intervene. Elise brushed herself off and assured her mom that they were just joking around. Boys will be boys. There's nothing to worry about. Lisanne wasn't so sure, but she trusted her daughter's judgment. You have to wonder, though, how far it would have gone had mom not shown up. After that encounter, the early summer of 1995 in Arroyo Grande was uneventful, but it was a chance encounter on an idle Friday that would change the community and the lives of four families forever. On July 21st, Elise and Jacob were hanging out at the home of a mutual friend. He asked her for her number under the guise that he had a lead for some pot and would give her a shout when he scored. Ever trusting, Elise gave him her number, never suspecting any ill intent. The following day, on July 22nd, Elise and her family were spending the evening at home watching movies when she received a phone call, presumably from the Lashman. Shortly thereafter, Elise suddenly claimed to be tired and told her family she was turning in for the night. I love you. I'm going to bed, she told them. Little did they know it would be the last thing they ever heard her say. Elise was not, in fact, tired. Delashment had scored his weed and some acid, and she was sneaking out to meet up with him and his friends. She stuffed pillows under her covers to make it look like she was sleeping, let herself out of the house, and made her way to the eucalyptus groves on the Napoma Mesa. It was there that Delashmet, Fiorella, and Casey were waiting. Williams was absent that night, because he had just been arrested for shooting an elderly woman. The four of them dropped acid and smoked weed, and hung out for a while. Elise was a petite girl, so it wouldn't have taken much for her to be riding high. It was then that the boys made their move. Casey yanked Elise up by her hair as Delashmet removed his belt and wrapped it around her neck, choking her into submission. Fiorella stepped forward with a knife, the same knife he had tossed to Williams just a few months before, and began stabbing the terrified teenager. Delashmet and Casey took turns with a knife, repeatedly stabbing Elise while she screamed out to God and her mother for help that would never come. The boys threw her to the ground and proceeded to stomp on her neck because she wasn't dying quickly enough. None of the wounds were fatal. Let that sink in. And then, they took turns raping Elisa's lifeless body. As soon as Elisa's parents discovered they'd been hoodwinked, they alerted the authorities immediately. 
The cops were not nearly as concerned. They just assumed she'd run off with friends and would eventually show back up. But days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, and Elise did not return home. Her family hoped against hope. They kept waiting for her to maybe, just maybe, walk back through the door. Tips came in of seeing a young, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl, but none were Elise. Rumors ran rampant. She had left for L.A. to become an actress. She had joined the circus, yes, really, and was in Colorado. And I think cruelest of all, she was alive and well, and would call on Christmas Day. So the family assembled and waited, and waited, for a call that didn't come. The following month, in January of 1996, about six months after Elise had disappeared, her grandmother published a letter in the local newspaper, thinking maybe if Elise read it, she would return home, or at the very least make contact. In part, it read, My dearest Elise, I miss you and I love you. Everyone is very worried and heartbroken because we don't know how you are, if you're happy warm, well-fed, and healthy. We can work it out. You can stay here with me until you want to go elsewhere. Please, please, just call me so we know you are alive. It wouldn't be until Wednesday, the 13th of March, that the family would finally get answers, when Royce Casey would confess to the horrors of Elise's last moments that night back in July. Authorities were aghast as the teenage boy detailed a murder that could only be described as pure evil. But that wasn't even the worst of it. As if killing her wasn't enough, for the eight months since, the boys had continued to visit the site and rape her lifeless body. Casey's supposed change of heart was due to his falling out with the other boys in his newfound Christianity. Now I'm sorry, but this whole Holy Roller Nobility Act is nothing but a big steaming pile of bovine fecal matter. The entire time the world was searching for Elise and actually praying for her safe return, this cowbag and his accomplices were bragging about the murder, though unfortunately no one believed them or took them seriously because 99 of the time that their lips were moving, they were lying. Casey also had a habit of recording his dear diary thoughts in the months following the murder. Just three months after the murder, one of those journal entries read, I'm fighting on the other side now, allied with the darkened souls. Satan's raised and shall conquer and reign. In the Bible it says that in the end Lucifer will bring out his best in everything, music, love, murder. All the psycho serial killers and rapists don't know that if they would just build an altar of sacrifice and kill the person on the altar and then have repeated sex with the corpse, Virgin meat is the ultimate sacrifice. So yeah, march on, Christian soldier. The real reason this little boil on the butt of humanity confessed is he was scared. No longer in the good graces of his fellow murderers. Theorella had told him she wouldn't be the only one. There would be others. Casey knew they meant him. So he tucked hell and ran, straight to the cops in an act of self-preservation, not out of guilt or the goodness of his heart. After Elise was recovered, less than a quarter mile from her home, the boys were charged with seven counts including murder, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit rape, and kidnapping. 
Special enhancements for torture and rape were also alleged, but due to the length of time that had passed since her death, there was no concrete evidence to support these allegations. In March of 1997, Fiorella pled guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for other charges being dismissed, though he denied Casey's versions of events, which, of course, he did. He was sentenced to 26 years to life. Years later, in 2018, at the age of 38, Viorella filed a habeas corpus petition challenging his continued incarceration, alleging that his lawyers didn't challenge his mental fitness for trial. Delashmit and Casey testified in the case that Fiorella did in fact understand the nature of the crime and was largely the ringleader of the group. As far as I can tell, the case is still pending. During his time in prison, Fiorella has either waived his right to parole suitability or been denied parole and remains in his cage. His next parole hearing is tentatively scheduled for the summer of 2022. Delashmit pled no contest in a similar deal to first-degree murder in October of 97 and received 26 to life, of which he'd served 22 years before the possibility of parole. He was denied parole for seven years in December of 17. In September of 1997, Casey, in an effort to avoid life without parole, pled no contest to first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 to life the following November to serve at least 21 of those 25 years before being eligible for parole. In July of 2016, he was denied parole for five years. In 2019, he waived his next parole hearing for another three. However, Casey was finally granted parole in March of 2021. Commissioner cited his model behavior in rehab programs, blah, 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 blah. But District Attorney Don Dow was having none of it. Dow penned a letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom urging him to review and reverse the parole board's decision to release Casey, arguing that he's still a safety threat to the public, stating that, quote, he has never adequately explained why he participated in such a sadistic and heinous crime. We maintain that Casey still has not developed insight into the character defects that allowed him to participate. I won't even go into all the whiny self-serving malarkey that Casey shot out of his butt about what a fine young man, well, middle-aged man, he's become. But it seems that while the parole board might have drank his Kool-Aid, D.A. Dow and ultimately Governor Newsom weren't thirsty. A month after the district attorney's letter, Casey's parole board decision was reversed by Governor Newsom, and his butt is still sitting in jail. And that, my friends, is the tragedy of Elise Pollard's far too short life. And years later, her parents would go on to sue the rock band Slayer, twice in fact, for their lyrics being the impetus of the crimes, though those lawsuits were ultimately unsuccessful. In other coverage of this case, a lot has been made of the music and its part, but I really think that was more of an excuse than a reason. These were just horrific failures of human beings that murdered an innocent girl. Casey himself has said that while the music was a bit much, it was Fiorella's obsession with Elise that really drove their motivations. Elise would have turned 41 years old this year. You have to wonder who she'd be today. Would she have made it to Hollywood to grace us on the big screen? Would life have taken her in other directions? We'll never know. I only hope 
that her family is able to celebrate the short time that they had with her and be able to at least find some peace in the years since her death. That'll do it for this premiere episode of Magic Gumbo. I hope you'll join me again to take a bite of another episode of October's Real Life Horrors. Thanks for listening, and until next time, y'all stay hungry.